we're taking a small detour from the Gospel of Mark, and we are headed into the prophet Ezekiel for this morning, just to change things up a little bit. And we're going, there's two well-known passages from the prophet uh, Ezekiel. And the first is the valley of dry bones, right? The bones coming alive with the breath of God and clicking together, right? If you've grown up in the church, that's a story that's in your imagination, I think, right? That should be somewhat familiar. The other one is the heart, uh, stones, heart of stones to hearts of flesh passage, and that's the one we're going to look at. So maybe neither of those are familiar to you, and we're going to dive into uh, the prophet Ezekiel and explore that a little bit together. And before we open Ezekiel and read the word of God, let's pray for the presence of the Spirit to be with us. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we gather this morning to worship and praise your name, to hear your good word to us. And so we ask that in the same way your spirit was at work in the writing and the creation of these words, that you move among your people now, those gathered here and at home, moving in our lives to hear your word, to let it take root deep in our souls and in our lives, so that we may grow more and more in the image of your son, Jesus, the one we love and the one who loves us. In the name of our Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So Ezekiel 36, and we're going to read verses 24 through 28. Ezekiel 36, and I think it'll also be up here. If you don't have your Bible, just look up here. Though if you do have your Bible, it's nice to see it in context too, okay? If you can find it quickly enough. It's back with all the prophets. Big book. Which means you should be able to find it if you just kind of flip the pages. Ezekiel 36. Starting at verse 24. And this is God speaking through the prophet to the people. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you haven't spent time in Ezekiel at all lately, it's not really one of the go-tos for devotionals or kind of anything you might pick up in a Christian bookstore to deepen your faith life. Ezekiel's not really touched on because it is a hard book, a brutal book, 
And it's not necessarily always easy to discern a way forward for what it means for us now. Because even among his fellow prophets, prophets are kind of known for being extreme, Ezekiel, Ezekiel kind of tops them all. And if you were here when we spent a summer going through the book of Jeremiah, you might be asking, how in the world can he be worse than that one? Ezekiel had some tall, tall tasks given to him by God. He had some amazing experiences. Ezekiel ate scrolls handed to him by angels. He saw flying creatures, half human and half animal. Once, for 390 days, he laid on his side, bound with rope, just as a, you know, to prove a point to God's people about what it means to be in exile. 390 days. And then there was a moment where God asked him to bake bread using human feces for fuel. And even Ezekiel was kind of like, okay, I laid for 390 days tied by rope, but that's a step too far, God. We, we need to rethink this one. And, and God relents and lets him use cow manure instead. Ezekiel was at, at God's, just doing what God asked of him to, to speak a strong message to God's people. And he had to be extreme because where God's people were at at the time of Ezekiel was some of the darkest times in Israel's history. The best and the brightest in his country had been uprooted and, and taken away to a foreign country, to Babylon, their greatest enemies. He was with the ones left behind. And then, so with most of God's people in exile, Ezekiel back in Jerusalem, halfway through his way of be, a time of being a prophet, the city of Jerusalem is invaded and ransacked. And God's people are sent fleeing or they're slaughtered or they're taken back to a foreign country. He was a prophet during the darkest time. But that's often the case with the prophets of God. But that wasn't the worst part for Ezekiel. For Ezekiel, the worst part was the message that he was actually asked to carry to God's people in this darkest time. God told Ezekiel, tell my people that all of this has come to pass because you have hardened your hearts. Because you have loved idols. Because you have turned away from God. Because you have broken every commandment. Ezekiel had to go around telling God's people, <clears throat> this is hard, and it's your fault. This did not make Ezekiel a beloved figure with his people. They did not like him, they did not like what he had to say, and they questioned whether or not he spoke for God, because could God truly say those things to us? So the book of Ezekiel is a hard book, but it's an essential book. Because against this brutal backdrop of exile and kings and oppression and betrayal and destruction and hard words of judgment, Ezekiel is ultimately a book of the heart. The heart of God's people. The health of their heart condition, if it's beating truly or if it's slowing and almost ready to stop. 
Throughout Ezekiel, throughout the prophet, he uses imagery and metaphors of heart conditions. So those who persecute and attack God's people, over and over again, they are repeatedly described as not just enemies, but those whose hearts are full of greed and malice. And then, the people of God, the people of Israel, they're summed up again and again as those who have idols in their hearts. And it's this heart condition that is the focus of Ezekiel's prophecies, and particularly of the passage we read this morning. Now, because we might not be as familiar with Ezekiel, just a little bit of context, a step back. When Ezekiel was called by God as a prophet, he was caught up in a vision, as most prophets are. And God carried him away from his place among the exiles to the temple back in Jerusalem. And God shows him exactly the condition of the people's hearts. He shows Ezekiel a vision of the main gate of the temple, the main place of worship, of gathering in God's presence. And he shows Ezekiel how God's people have placed a large idol of a foreign god right at the entrance, violating the covenant vows they took to have no other god beside Yahweh. And then God in his vision takes him further into the court of the temple. And on the walls, God's people have kind of done a kind of religious graffiti. <laughs> Pictures and paintings of, of foreign gods and idols and, and creatures belonging to other countries. And that's in the very holy place of God's presence. And then God shows Ezekiel in his vision the leaders of the people bowing down and burning incense to anything and everything except the God they vowed to follow. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what the leaders of Israel are doing? Do you see what they're doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol? And they say to themselves, the Lord doesn't see us. And then Ezekiel's shown a few quick images. One is a, a woman grieving the death of Tammuz. <laughs> You're like, I don't know who Tammuz is. Tammuz is a Babylonian god that dies at the end of the summer solstice. It's part of an ending of summer and beginning of harvest ritual for Babylonians. And so here's a woman who's supposed to have no other god in her heart except the god of Israel, and she's grieving the loss of Tammuz at the end of the summer solstice. And then God shows Ezekiel a vision of a group of men with their backs to the temple, their backs to God's presence, and their faces raised to the rising sun, worshiping the sun as their God who brings light. God shows Ezekiel and says, this, this is where my people are. This is where their hearts are. They've betrayed me. And they did so because they thought the Lord doesn't see us. 
the beating heart of the covenant between God and God's people was that promise made on Mount Sinai. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. But in Ezekiel's time, they turned their backs on their God. They raised their hands to other gods. They placed sacrifices on altars to idols of stone. And then it's no surprise that they become what they worship. Their idols of stone make their once beating hearts of flesh turn hard, corroded, until they petrify into hearts of stone. And God's voice throughout the book of Ezekiel is, it's not just condemnation, it's not just judgment, it is longing and bewilderment. God cries to his people through the prophet Ezekiel, why do you choose death? Repent, live, choose life. In chapter 18, God actually begs his people, begs them to repent. Get a new heart and a new spirit. Why do you choose to die? Because God knew the heart condition of his people was terminal. A death sentence. A living creature cannot live with a heart of stone a heart given to idols, a heart that cannot beat with joy in life, in relationship with God. We may not have a big, giant, stone, foreign God at the entrance of our place of worship. We may not bow down before the sun or grieve the loss of the God of the summer solstice. Our idols might not look like that, but it most certainly doesn't mean we don't have them. Frederick Buechner defines idolatry as the practice of ascribing absolute value to things of relative worth. Buechner writes that under certain circumstances, money, patriotism, sexual freedom, moral principles, family loyalty, physical health, social or intellectual preeminence, and so on, are fine things to have around. But to make them the standard by which all other values are measured, to make them your masters, to look to them to justify your life or to save yourself, that is the sheerest folly. It is really easy to mock the Israelites for their idol worship when it looks so different from our own. We don't have bull-headed statues. It's easy to laugh and say, well, I should have known better. <laughs> But 
There's an episode on the CBC program, Ideas. And this was back when Peter Kennedy was still the host, so it's, it's been a couple years. But they were discussing the topic of idolatry for beginners. And the question that they were exploring on this uh, CBC program was, if religious language of idolatry has any meaning or place in our kind of modern secular age, is the language of idolatry helpful at all? Does it do anything for us? Does it diagnose anything still? And throughout the discussion, one of the guests, Laura Duke, she summed up the act of idolatry. She said, it's fundamentally when we are reaching for an idol that we intuitively realize that I am a person, I am a person looking, looking for a system to save me. She says, I love the idea that there is something out there, some system, some technique, some person, that can actually help me with my need for human resiliency, that I've got a source, I've got a system, I've got something that will help me bounce back through what I need to get through. Reaching for a salvation system, looking for someone or something to save us, to make life just a little easier, to give us a little bit of resiliency to face what we need to face. As Fichtner writes, to justify our life or save ourself. So what's your system? Who's your person? What book are you reading? What ideology do you think is going to make sense of your life? That's going to justify how you live? Or that's going to save your soul? What do you reach for? What idols are cluttering and taking up space in your heart? If God were to take Ezekiel on a tour of your heart, like he did the tour of the temple, what would he point out to the prophet? What would he say is your heart condition? What would he see? Maybe they would point out how you've raised a statue to the power that a large bank account gives you. Maybe God would point out how you've made sacrifices on the altar of a perfect family, at least the look of one. Have you burned incense in front of the image of that perfect spouse who's going to solve all your loneliness and all of your needs? Or would God show him the altar to your job, your career, your position, and how you sacrifice your relationships with your children on that altar? Would there be an idol of being right all the time? May there be some writing on the wall about your need for other people's approval, how you don't feel right in your own skin until you hear someone say, good job. What's taking up space in your heart? What idols are to be found there? Political ideology? Religious certainty? <clears throat> the Montreal Canadiens? 
Is that too soon? That's too soon. Lorna Duke on ideas back in that conversation about idolatry for beginners. She talked about how you know if something you love has become an idol. She goes, it's a pretty easy litmus test. She asks herself continually about things she loves and people she loves. Is it producing fruitfulness? Does this love of my job or my conservative party or my favorite sports team, does joy come from it? Does life? Am I becoming a more loving person, a more welcoming person, because of this love in my life? Which is to ask the question, does this love, this commitment, does it make me more Christ-like? Does it show the fruits of the Spirit in my life? And whenever the answer is no, it's likely that an idol is taking up residence in your heart, twisting something good into something that deforms. We turn to our idols for salvation all the time, for security, for meaning, for purpose, for worth. And idols do what idols do. They just suck up that life and give us nothing in return. Just hardened hearts of stone. Then you hear God's pleas to his people through the prophet Ezekiel. Repent, repent, live, change your heart, renew your spirit. Don't choose death, leave your idols. But we just can't help ourselves. Our heart condition just gets worse. There's no ability that we can do surgery on ourselves. Our hearts get harder. Our idols get stronger. And that would be the end of the story. Except for the fact that we are loved by a jealous God. Here in Ezekiel 36, the people of God, unable to change their hearts, unable to leave their idols, like someone deeply caught in addiction, hear the saving words of the Lord. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries. I will bring you back home. I will sprinkle you with water. I will wash you clean from all that dirt and from those filthy idols. I will remove from you your hardened heart of stone. I will give you a new beating heart of flesh and blood. I will breathe my spirit into you. I will give you life and hope and strength. Because I am your God and because you are my people, because that is who I am, and that is who you are. Knowing that his people cannot save themselves, knowing that their idols can't save them either, God steps in to save. 
to wash his people clean, to scrub away the dirt, to clean house and pitch those statues out, to remove a lifeless stone heart and replace it with a beating one made for relationship, made for joy, made for life. These are the words we hear in baptism. These are the same undeserved words of grace that I will be your God and you will be my people. The same words of promise and belonging and renewal. I will wash you clean. Now, that doesn't mean just because we are baptized children of God or that we've been doing this faith journey for decades, for some of us. It does not mean that when God says, I will wash you clean, that that is an easy or comfortable process. Removing idols takes work. And God doesn't just snap his fingers and make it all clean. Instead, God is like a good parent, a good coach, who stands next to us, walks with us, and helps us with the task at hand. Patiently teaching us again and again, training us again and again how to clear our hearts of idols how to push those statues out. And we learn, and then a new idol pops up, and we fail all over again, and then we start again. Removing idols is painful work. It is sanctifying work. And it requires that we be brutally honest with ourselves and with God about our shortcomings, about our weaknesses, about our fears, about our desires. And that's fearful work too. But it is good, spirit-filled work. And it is work that changes us from the inside out. It is a grace that removes from us a heart of stone and gives us a beating heart of flesh and blood. I will be your God and you will be my people. Thanks be to God for our jealous God who claims us, who doesn't let us choose death, but saves us from ourselves from our idols, from all that leaves us hardened and lost. Let's pray. You are our God and we are your people. And we love our idols. We love the quick fix and the easy way. We love the safety that we think comes with them. 
And so we raise up to you all that we put between you and us. Even the ones that we cling to especially and have been long-time friends of ours. We lay them bare before you, asking you through your spirit to do the work of a jealous God, tearing down our idols, turning our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh so that we can live more for you, for each other, and for the world. In the name of Jesus, amen.